So I stood on my head. You guys couldn't see it, but uh, that seemed to make everything work again. So we were talking about we were talking about this timeline um, of the Jewish tradition and how long it is, how it starts four thousand years ago, um, and how through the ages we get to this point after the reign of King David where. The Jewish people are conquered by the Babylonians, and in 586, the Babylonian exile is this significant event in their history. And coming out of this event, uh, they decide to kind of write things down, and so they take this oral tradition, at least most mainline scholars believe this, they take this oral tradition and they write it down in what is called the Tanakh, and this is the first five books of our Old Testament um, or what you would call the Torah. Um, we talked about how the influence of other cultures like the Greeks, the Maccabean Revolt, um, after the Greeks became highly influential, and there was a concern by some Jews that they were losing right, what made them Jewish, what made them unique. And then we also talked about how um, about 70 years after Christ, uh, there was a destruction of the second temple, the rebuilding of the temple, which was a really big deal. For them, And it led to significant conflict with the Romans, which eventually led to the Greeks leaving this area and kind of dispersing throughout northern Africa and Europe. This week, I want to talk to you about the literature of this faith that has been a foundation for what it means to be and to study and to live as a Jewish person. We talked about this book or this collection of books last week called the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is essentially the, the Hebrew Bible. And what came out of the Babylonian exile was the compilation of the first five books of the Tanakh, or the Torah. But the Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible is identified in this way, the Torah, the Nephium, and the Ketuvim. And these are books that we have in our Old Testament too. The prophets are not in the same order, but it's basically like thinking of the Old Testament, Shy. Um, only they don't call it the Old so Testament. So we just throw it away, right? No, no. No, we don't throw it away. We honor it and we respect it as part of our shared tradition. But our Bible has a, a new part, mm -hmm. right? And the Tanakh does not have that new part. If you're curious where that name comes from, this is actually how this name is derived, um, Tanakh from the Torah or the law and from the prophets and then from the other writings um, that come out of the Old Testament. So for us, our book is basically, our Bible is the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is where it gets really interesting in understanding the foundational elements of how you study Judaism. In the common era after the birth and death and resurrection of Christ, the Jews continue with their writing, and their sacred scriptures are not just limited to that Bible. One of the really important collection of books to Jews is the collection of books called the Talmud. Now, the Talmud, I think, is first published around 200 in the Common Era by Rabbi Judah, who was um, a revered rabbi at that time. And the Talmud is uh, a series of volumes of books that basically consist of these two items, 
there is a collection called the Mishnah and a collection called the Gemara. The Mishnah is part of the Talmud that has like opinions on law and religion, uh, religious practice, let's say. So that is one part that's very important. It's kind of like a, a, a case law book of all the laws. So looking back on books that we take out of the Torah. The laws of the religion? Yes. Okay. So Mosaic law would be the kind of rules, the kind of laws that come out of books like Numbers and Exodus and Leviticus and yes. Deuteronomy. So there are volumes that rabbis wrote um, that are expounding on what these laws mean, examining these laws, giving opinions about these laws. The Gemara is also part of the Talmud, and it's a separate section, and there are actually two Gemaras, I believe, one that comes out of the sages of Israel and one that comes out of the sages of Babylon. And the way this happens is, when the Babylonians conquer Israel, the, Isra the Israelites are eventually kind of rescued by the Persians, who let them come back, rebuild a temple, um, formulate back in Israel, but a lot of Jews didn't want to leave Babylon because they liked it there. You know, it'd be like if we had to flee to New York or Chicago and then we were allowed to come back to Missouri, there'd be a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'm ready to go home. Mm -hmm. And there'd be some people who were like, it's my new life. Yeah. I mean, I, I like it here. Yeah. I think I'm sticking around. Mm -hmm. So in the region that we would now, I think, identify as Iraq, um, they stayed. And that was a place of significant influence um, and a place where a big part of these writings in the Talmud came out of. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to talk to Rabbi Barbara Block, who is the rabbi for um, Temple Israel here in town. And I asked her about the Talmud, and here's what she shared with me. And the Talmud doesn't simply say, this is the law, this is the law, this is the law. The Talmud says... These rabbis had a discussion. And this rabbi said this, and that rabbi said that. And then there's more discussion. And ultimately, they decided. Sometimes it will actually say, and the law is decided this way. Even when it says that, which doesn't always, it records the opinion of the minority. The minority opinion gets respect. And it's there for a number of reasons. I did this study on this. It's, it's there for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons is that in future generations, people may look back and say, you know, the minority actually have a better plan. We're going to do things the way So Rabbi Block kind of cut out there toward the end of that video, but the point she was making about the writings of the Talmud is that the Jewish people were very deliberate about including the opinions of the minority. So rabbis who had a minority opinion, uh, although it may not be published as the rule they were going to follow, they included that part of their history because they knew that they might get to a point downstream where people think, um... You know, sense. yeah, I think these guys had a point, and we should be that's fascinating. Considering that more, it is fascinating, and it's it's um, it's kind of in line with the prophetic tradition within Judaism, 
which really is a group of people who were teaching and preaching at the time, we're not doing it right. We've got to become real and to include those as your sacred books, I think is a practice of great humility and wisdom. Yeah, normally we would just discard. Yeah, you're the loser. We're not. Yeah, you, you lose. You lose. Shut up. Victors, you know, write the history. Yeah. Um, the other part of writings that are very important within Judaism, besides the Tanakh or the Bible, and besides the Talmud, um, is the Midrash. And I think this is one of the most fascinating parts, scholarly practice and study. The Midrash is a collection of essentially commentaries and interpretations on things that have already been written in the Talmud or in the, in the Tanakh. And these are sections that are kind of broken into interpretations and explanations. And so let me give you an example that Rabbi Block gave me about a Midrash. So we talked about how Abraham starts the Jewish faith, right, and starts this covenant with God. But there's no real description about why that happens. Why did God choose him? Why did he become a monotheist at a time when, like, nobody was doing that? So there's this Midrash that says Abraham's father was an idol maker at the time, and he made and he sold these idols that people used as part of their religious practice. And so one day, uh, Abram's father leaves him at the store, and while he's gone, Abram ends up breaking a bunch of these idols. But Abram gets it in his head, like, I'm going to stage the idols and put, like, things in their hands so it looks like they did it. And so when he comes back, his father says, hey, what the hell, <laughs> man? Like, what happened? And Abram says, well, all these idols um, did it. They're the, the culprits. And Abram's father says, these idols can't do anything. I know that's not true. And this experience as a boy was an epiphany to him. And it started him thinking about the fact that this idol worship wasn't was empty, real. right? Yeah. That it was nothing empty. to it, yeah. And so he opened himself or he began his search, but there was this opening for him spiritually to see that it wasn't real. Now, is that really what happened? I don't know. I mean, nobody knows. But rabbis have talked about what might have been. So for Christians, we don't have anything really like that, we think. But stay with me, because culturally... We buried it. <laughs> well, you know, we, we refuse, but we kind of don't. Okay. So when you think about, like, well, how does, how, what would be an example of the Midrash in the West, Western culture? Here's one of my examples for you. Hamilton. Like, Hamilton is a kind of fan fiction for history, yeah. where these nuances and pieces that we really don't know about someone has gone in and not necessarily done it for historical purposes, it's fiction, but there is an historical element and he's tried to recreate the story in a way that brings it alive yeah. and helps you understand the people and the characters in a way that's relevant. 
another really fascinating example of like not midrash, but how you how you contextualize, how you build on existing characters is the book and the show Wicked, which mm-hmm. takes the Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. but it writes the story in a way that kind of fills in these gaps and helps you understand the characters from different angles and different perspectives. Like that Karate Kid show you were just telling me about like, before we started pairing. <laughs> I mean, well... What was it? Cobra kind of Kai. <laughs> Cobra Kai. It's all you need to know. I mean, kind of. <laughs> so, so here's... Uh, people may say, well, we don't have anything like that in Christianity. You know, it's the Bible. The Bible says it. That's the end of the line for us. Like, we don't need anybody to try to make things up. But I want to share something with you that maybe has you haven't thought about before. This is a book called Dante's Inferno. And here's what I think is kind of revelatory about Dante's Inferno. If you ask a lot of theologians, especially scholars on Old and New Testament, I think a lot of people would tell you that the modern idea of hell in Christian thought resembles much more of Dante's tragic comedy, Inferno, than it does anything that's actually written in the Bible. And that what seems to have happened was the influence of this book made this place that was so foreign to us and hard to understand come alive in a way that people started to adopt the imagery and the commentary and the way that Dante expounded on what hell is. So... What's the date of Dante's Inferno? Oh. That sounds like a a nightclub, by the way. Dante's Dante's Inferno. It probably is, like in every city. Uh, Dante's Inferno. So I love that the Jewish tradition is intentional about trying to help you understand. And it's done by people who are steeped in the biblical tradition and understand the history and the relevancy and the context. Um, So when you think about the books, right, the Tanakh, the Talmud, and the Midrash are the significant sources of study and spiritual guidance or inspiration for the Jews. In fact, I think that when you're training to be a rabbi, most people would tell you that what you're really training for is the ability to study the Talmud, that that's actually what people focus on more than the Hebrew Bible. Chris Roberts commented, I think that also happened with the Left Behind books. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's fair, right? There are a lot of people, so we, we have a tendency, maybe it's because we don't have a Midrash, to take our culture, even though we like to deny that culture influences our faith, and adopt these things because we can relate to them, we understand them, and they can fill these gaps. Um, so, interesting point, um, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> I'm getting lost in the comments now. <laughs> but when you come out of all of that, some of you may be thinking, well, okay, that's really interesting to know uh, these books that they have and that they've, they've written even with, within the last uh, couple thousand years. 
but what's the purpose, right? Because I feel like when you are evangelized by people within the Christian faith, they're very, um, they have an idea of what the purpose for evangelism is. So I'm going to throw this question out. I want you guys to type this back and tell me what you think. What do you think most Christians would say the purpose of becoming a Christian is? Go to heaven. Is that <laughs> if I had a buzzer, I would hit it. <laughs> I got in quick. I felt like that was a game show. Shy got in quick. Okay. Um, anyone I, else? <laughs> I'm waiting because I want to see the comments and there's a delay, so we should have had some Jeopardy music <laughs> available for you guys. Um, Shut up. But I okay, they're telling me it's twenty seconds, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move on. <laughs> but I think Shy is right. I think that for most people, most Christians, the the purpose behind becoming a Christian is salvation. I see John Hill's comment, not to go to hell, right? And that's what salvation essentially means is that you won't go to hell. So the purpose behind becoming a Christian becomes avoiding hell and succeeding in you know having the key to get you just got three avoiding hell comments avoiding hell go to heaven yeah i I mean i i don't know how you'd get around that (laughs) yeah but the reason i draw that out is because after you look at the writing and all the time that the jewish tradition has spent trying to analyze and comment and read through and criticize their own history and writings here's the purpose that they would share with you is is the purpose behind becoming jewish and it's very very different and i'm going to share a few perspectives with you and the first one is again from rabbi block so take a listen i wonder what you can share with us about the differences in the idea of afterlife in Judaism. I think the most important point is that the afterlife, although it is certainly discussed in Jewish sources, is not as central to Jewish thought as it is to Christian thought. The next thing I will say is that there is a wide range of opinions about what happens after death among Jews. And everything from an Orthodox rabbi, who much to my surprise wrote that without without, um, an afterlife, our current life is meaningless, which sounds very Christian to me, actually, but this was an Orthodox Jew who wrote it, very surprising to me, to the, the view I rather like, which says, We don't know what happens after death. We need to pay attention to how we live our life in this world, and the next world will take care of itself. So I think that while you would find um, Jewish scholars, Jewish teachers, Jewish people who do, you know, certainly believe in, in an afterlife and the importance of an afterlife, salvation in the way that we see it as a way to avoid hell and get to heaven is not really the purpose. Um, It's much more intentional about the here and the now, living 
with intention right now. It's very practical in that way. I think it's, I just heard her for the first time say it. I didn't hear her say it when I was listening to you interview her at first. Mm -hmm. But when she said that life is meaningless sounds more Christian. Like that actually, I, I have always said that I have this nihilist streak in me that's just like nothing matters, nothing means anything. It's, I have never heard that as sounding Christian, but when I think about the way I was brought up with Christianity, that's exactly what they were telling me, <laughs> that life meant nothing. Well, I Very think we can get, I think we can get lost in that trap, that it's all about heaven and hell, and it's not so much about the right now. And I shared this um, video from Anna Weiner, who is a friend of mine, family is a, a family family friends of mine and I kind of asked her the same kind of question and um, here's what she said about the same kind of topic uh, as a last thought my favorite quote burdened with finishing the work, but neither are you free to abandon it, which is the idea that you don't worry about the past, you don't worry about the future and whether you're going to heaven or hell or not, or whether people are going to like you. You worry about this moment and what you have with it, because God only gave you this moment. So, thank you. I want to, before I forget this, Jewish woman. I want to thank them both for sharing their thoughts this past week with us. Um, you can see a little bit of a shift in how we see the purpose of our faith and how they view the purpose of their faith. When I was teaching But in this interview, he, he gave this quote where he said, Judaism tends to be a journey from life not going well through to the questions, well, what can we do? How should we live? How can we rescue something from tragedy? How can we live right now to, and this is going to sound very And who was Jesus when he says, nobody's going to be able to be like, well, there's heaven or there's heaven. Because depending on your translation, he says, heaven is in your midst or heaven is within you. Like it's here, man. You're Jesus looking said that? for it. Yes. Hmm, I must have missed that one. <laughs> I think I missed that yes. day. So I, I find it. I find it interesting. I find it really compelling, and it draws me back to my faith to examine what Christ is really teaching me when he's in this community, when he's born into this faith, into this culture, because I think you, you have to understand that culture in order to understand what he's trying to tell you, because he's part of it. 
Now, the other thing that's really interesting to me, of course, is that we get to this point where we're talking about Jesus with our friends in Judaism, and it's kind of a line in the sand <laughs> for a lot of Christians, right? Christianity um, also, I, I don't know if I want to say prides itself, but I mean, it does. I, maybe that's the I'll right say word. It prides itself. <laughs> Christianity focuses on the exclusivity of Jesus. Right. And so you have these passages like I am the way, the truth and the light. Nobody comes uh, life. Nobody comes to the father but by me. And Christianity has interpreted that to mean that Jesus is talking about Jesus, the physical Jesus, the physical Jesus. And that in modern parlance, you have to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior in order to be saved and avoid hell. This connects us to our purpose again, right? The reason I find that interesting is because Judaism doesn't do that. It doesn't have or claim an exclusivity on how you get to the afterlife. So while Christianity would say the goal is to get to heaven and you have to do it through Jesus, Judaism would say, well, the goal isn't to get to heaven, but if you, if you are intentional about what you do here and you live a good life, right, as God is instructing you, as God is speaking to you, the next life will take care of itself. But in addition to that, Judaism says, but you don't, you don't have to do it through Judaism. You don't have to convert to Judaism in order to do it. And I asked Rabbi Block about that this past week, and here's the last clip I have for you, getting close to being done. But I did want to share this with you because I think it's another very important theological distinction. The Talmud says, rabbis of the Talmud said, that the righteous of all nations have a share in the world to come. One of the things I like about Judaism is that Judaism does not teach that the only way to live a good life is by being Jewish. And the only way to salvation, insofar as you want to talk about being saved in the next world after death, you don't have to be Jewish. We think it often helps because we have, a, but, but there are Jews who do bad things too, that we're realistic. There's no, we haven't yet, humans have not yet found a tradition that is a fail safe way to get people to lead a good life. So I think that understanding the sacred books in Judaism and how what those are, what they mean, the, the, the investment in that space is important. I think knowing um, in some ways how they're different in their practice and their theology other than the fact that they don't see Jesus as the son of God in the same way that Christians do, which I don't, I don't mean to diminish but I think those other points are important points that people probably don't know a lot about. Um, well, to me, even if you don't know exactly what these writings say, knowing that their purpose was to challenge what already existed and to just offer more thought and maybe a perspective that's less seen, like I think just that gesture in itself is what speaks to me personally. It might not say Jesus outright, but humility does say Jesus to me. So well said. 
I just that that's where I get really frustrated because I understand that she's saying Jesus is, you know, like she has a different frame of him. She's saying that. But if you're looking at what she's saying she believes, like it's still Jesus. And most of the time it's not good enough theologically in Christianity to do Jesus. We want you to say yes, the name it. and profess the name. And that's, that is something that's very different between our, our two faiths. Here's the last thing that I, that I have. And I think this is as important as anything we've talked about in the last two weeks. In looking at Judaism, I have had to take a look at the things that I have taken for granted myself when I read scripture. And I read a book called Holy Envy last year, and it's written by Barbara Brown Taylor. It's a, she is fascinating. If you've never listened to her, she's bright and kind and well-spoken and, um, Barbara wrote this book largely based on her experience teaching World College, I think, in Georgia. And she was talking about how this is a person I would consider to be very open-minded, speaks, writes that way. But she got an email um, or maybe a letter from a psychologist who had been reading some of what she wrote. And the person was Jewish, and he said that she was using language of contempt. Try to be really intentional about Is there anything happening? Okay, I'm back. <laughs> oh my God, what is happening this right now? This is a now? fun game. I wish this was a drinking game. <laughs> okay, so what I was saying was, and this is really important. I hope we didn't lose anybody. <laughs> I think it's important. No, you're good. She was saying that when she, that, that her friend, her pen pal, was commenting that when she talks about the Pharisees in such hostile language, she is talking about Jewish people. Right. She is talking about people that the Jews hold in high regard. The Pharisees were a kind of populist tradition of teachers. You had Levites who were kind of born in. Studied, they had to work for it. They were thought of as a kind of populist figure of the people.
death of Christ and the first hundred years following his death, we're trying to really distinguish Christianity as a sect of Judaism from classical Judaism, in part because Rome hated the Jews and there was major conflict between the two communities. And in doing that, they were trying to separate the Pharisees from Jesus. I think that sometimes we probably forget that when we talk about the Pharisees or we talk about the Jews, we're talking about people who live and work among us. This isn't just history. We're talking about a community of people that have survived and are still here. And so it forced Barbara to think about how she was speaking about the Jewish community, even when she was using language that was from the New Testament. And it, it has caused me to kind of rethink maybe um, whether or not I take some things for granted in Scripture and how I talk about and use Scripture. And I just think that we should be careful and that maybe we should listen to Jewish figures, to Jewish scholars, to Jewish teachers who might tell us something about how they feel when we use that language. Barbara has this really powerful quote in her book where she says, our shadows are often behind us where others can see them better than we can. And so maybe sometimes we take things from our tradition and we're using them and we can't see the shadow that they're casting behind us on people and how maybe they're, they're hurting them. So I threw that out there just because... I mean, we do that in our personal life. I'm sure we can do that in groups. I think we should be... I just think we should be aware um, of where we come from, of, you know, the Jewish teacher that we follow and that he was part of that community. It kind of strikes me as though you ever have like family conflict and then like yes. one of your friends or say, <laughs> one of your friends will say something about your family. Sometimes I think about it this way and you're like, Hey, wait a minute. Like I can, it's my family, yes. all right. So you don't get to talk you? that way yeah. about my family. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if, if that's not the Jewish perspective. Like, okay, I I get that you guys have an opinion, but honestly, dude, like that's watch your mouth. Yeah, that's our family. Yeah. He was in our family. Yeah. So which is fair. Careful. Fair. Careful. I keep hitting my mic. Anyway. That's the two weeks that I have. Uh, uh, there's so much more to talk about. And uh, with our sound issues, I've gone a little long again. But um, that's our two weeks on Judaism. I hope that you learned something. I And that it. you can take something with you. I learned so much. I'm taking a lot with me. I hope so. It was really good. I'm I excited for next week. Maybe even just a more open mind. Yeah. Um, and a willingness to learn and rethink what you thought you knew so next week we're going to talk about christianity we're going to have two weeks on christianity we're going to talk about the bible 
its organization and how it formed last week and into our history a little bit. It's a natural transition because this is exactly where we come from. So anyway, I hope you guys will join us next week. We'll work on our sound issues. Yeah. I may just do the whole thing on my head. That week, might be what I we might. have to do. So thanks for hanging with us tonight, everyone. We will see you again next Thursday at 6.30 p.m.